0: From Sheboygan Falls to the Windy City, today we look at the early career of Ed Strangler Lewis. (laughs) Crazy territory, stories,
1: double crosses, and swords. Call us a history nerds.
0: Hey, everybody. We're back. You're back. You press the button. You have the earbuds in your ears. Maybe you're listening in your car. Maybe you're just hiding deep in a cave underneath the uh, Earth's crust after the doom that came for us all. And you are the last one left with nothing to listen to but this podcast. What the hell am I talking about? What are we doing? What is even happening? Well, It's time for Pro Wrestling History Nerds. My name is Nick Gossert. I am a wrestling promoter, a wrestling booker, occasionally a ring announcer, but more importantly for today, I am a history nerd. And I am here, as always, with the jabber jaw to my speed buggy. That was the the buggy's name in that cartoon, I think. Uh, It's Chango Bronson. How the hell are ya? Oh, I'm capital, old chap. And I know that if the last man on earth is indeed listening to this
1: podcast, one he has great taste. And two, he appreciates my ability to cheat off your homework. It is capital to hear and see you again, old chap. Hello, nerds!
0: I'm excited. We are here. We're continuing this arc that we've been doing about wrestling after the post-Gotch Hackenschmidt matches, how wrestling rebuilt, reformed, became what it is today. We've discussed guys like Zabisco and... Uh, Stetcher, and Pesek. And now we are on to one of the most important figures, not just of that day, but of any day in wrestling history. We're going to be talking about Ed Strangler Lewis.
1: We just got back to the original tease on the first Pro Wrestling History Nerds commercial that we ever did. Why were there two Strangler Lewises? We are about to find out, nerds!
0: Yeah, because we kind of hit this point where we're now seeing what wrestling became, even to this day, where we started seeing wrestling becoming less of a, an actual competition, more of a competitive-flavored entertainment. You know, we always say, back in those days, it was legitimate, for the most part, and now we're kind of getting into the opposite side of things, the eclipse of that concept, where it was entertainment. For the most part and one of the guys who very much embodied what that could be was ed strangler lewis and we draw from the best I always want to go over this. I always like making this disclaimer that I am doing the best research that I can. I am delving deep into the newspaper archives. Um, a lot of this comes from two books: uh, Steve Yohe's great book on his biography of Ed Lewis, and the Barnum of Barnum's Abounce, another uh, great book on the subject of wrestling in this era so if you hear something that i i I kind of gloss over it's just because i personally didn't think it was important for this narrative if i got something that you think is wrong well that's what i'm drawing from the chicago examiner in 1914 i'm doing my best gosh darn it so hopefully you appreciate that
1: yeah and if you don't shut up no one cares sit down and listen and enjoy the show because this man is doing a really good job of researching and I'm doing a really good job of sitting here and listening to him tell me about the research he's doing and reacting to it on behalf of you, the people.
0: And I, I honestly think that it's very funny that as an adult, my new favorite thing to do is homework. And I did my homework on this one, because let's just dive into this guy's life, because it is bananas, it is crazy, it is fascinating. So Ed Lewis, as you probably guessed, was not born Ed Lewis. Uh, His middle name on uh, his birth certificate was not the Strangler. He was born Robert Herman Julius Friedrich on June 30th, 1890 in Sheboygan Falls, Wisconsin. And I just like saying Sheboygan.
1: Yeah, I don't like any of that. We're gonna redo it all from from parts unknown, or Grand Rapids, Mississippi, or something a little more catchy. It's gotta pass the headliner test. You know what I'm saying?
0: And according to the man himself, he weighed 12 pounds at birth, which is an insanely large baby. I don't know how he didn't uh, split his mother in two, but I am not a doctor. I don't know how things work. I just know if I pooped that big, I would be dead.
1: Yes, uh, Charlo Jr. was 11 pounds, six ounces, and that almost happened. So I can only imagine with that extra half a pound if it wasn't, you know, a little bit of a, a working weight. That is, a 12-pound baby is a serious, serious uh, turkey dinner at Thanksgiving.
0: Uh, his father was Jacob Friedrich, and his mother was Mary. The records show her full name as Mary, Molly, Mala, or Amelia Goldensop. The two had married in September, 1888, Jacob had emigrated from Germany when he was 23 and had worked as a farmer, a woodcutter, a butcher, and was working in a paper company when Robert was born. Both Jacob and Mary were big German stock people, both clocking in around 200 pounds each. Robert, called Bob by most, was the third of five children, and the family settled down in Nacusa, Wisconsin, where the kids attended public school. And when I read the descriptions of his parents being like that kind of like big, hefty German stock, all I could see were galutes for Brennan Stippy.
1: <laughs> yes. And, uh, you know, the, the reality is, man, the bigger the woman, the bigger the baby. So I could believe that, uh, you know, the 12 pounds is sounding a little bit more like a shoot right now. brother. Um, yeah.
0: And, it, and it's one of those things where the aesthetics of what you are attracted to – are defined by the necessity of life and culture and if you are a you know bavarian farmer you know a, a german uh, you know german peasant you, you see a woman who can who looks like she can hoist a cow and uh, you know milk the hay or whatever happens on a farm that's got to give you a little bit of a boner that you couldn't really explain today
1: stout is hot <laughs> and not just not just in the pint glass either old
0: And Bob himself was big. He was a big athletic kid and a source of serious parental headaches. When Bob started coming home with dirty and torn clothes, his parents demanded answers. Clothes cost money, and money was tight, and Jacob walked to the school to see what was happening after school and saw Bob wrestling every boy he could find. Jacob lost his temper and beat his son in front of his classmates and Bob refused to return to the school out of humiliation, so his parents had to enroll him in a local German Lutheran school.
1: Don't you just love it when a parent stumbles across uh, their child doing what they were born to do, and then just beats the shit out of them and uh, completely like derails any, you know, uh, tries to completely cut them off at the past. There's no more sure way to get the kid to do the thing than doing that. So maybe it was a good thing. I don't know. Double reverse negative... Psycho-psychology.
0: And I don't want to, you know, try to trivialize, uh, you know, the the parental abuse or uh, beating a child, but I also think it's kind of fucked up that his dad didn't make him look strong in front of his friends. I mean, hey, you know, this is your perfect chance to put over the kid. He's already whooping everybody's ass. Make the kid look strong. You know, turn him into a legend. Don't tear him down because now you have to pay for a private school. And in this German Lutheran school, Bob excelled at basketball, track and field, and shockingly wrestling. But his favorite sport, like many of his age, was baseball. And one of his favorite stories centered around a team trip to Pittsfield where they won the game but didn't have enough money to make it back home. So the baseball manager arranged a wrestling match for the young grappler against Pittsfield local George Brown. Bob only knew one hold at the time with a bear hug, but he allegedly secured the hold and rendered Brown in one crazy, crazy uh, fall for the win, and Bob's cut was $15, which got everyone on the team back home. Bullshit or truth, that's a great story. Yeah, what a great Little League program! They're
1: getting these guys paid! They're like, listen, we, got, we couldn't get it, we don't have enough money to get the team back, but if you fight this other kid for money, and we all bet on it,
0: what well, are the
1: parents, man! This is,
0: yeah, th- this, is, this is definitely the era of you know, wrestlers are getting more press time, so they're definitely telling more bullshit or bullshit-flavored stories about their uh, about their youth. They really come to be feeling very tall-tailish, but uh, I still love it.
1: Yeah, that's an awesome. That's an awesome if I ever heard one.
0: He also claimed that around this time, the local barber gave him a book about human anatomy, which he studied to gain an advantage in wrestling. He also received the spalding guide to wrestling and soon enough there were there was a line of angry parents visiting the friedrichs complaining about what young bob had done to their sons so and the spalding guide was like a, it was like a fairly annual you know sporting uh, magazine about various sports and the wrestling version would be you know all the holds and all the you know exercises you need to do so he was taking his book on uh, how 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 the neck attaches to the shoulders and a book about uh, some basic holds, and going out and working over the neighborhood kids. And I can honestly say I relate to that because uh, my 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 goofy ass you know childhood fighting like a karate book and a wrestling book, and then it was just fight every kid on the street until uh, your know, parents complained.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say it reminds me of taking the uh, the rubber guard book into the college wrestling room, <laughs> throwing it up throwing up a high rubber guard on these guys that are just wrestlers not submission guys yeah that's hilarious because I know the book the book gives you knowledge if you're dangerous so I I absolutely believe that's a shoot
0: oh 100 percent yeah because I remember I remember just reading like the, the 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 karate basics or kung fu basics that I got at the library when I was like 10 and it taught me just enough of how to throw a kick to be a problem.
1: Yes, totally. The the, the, the tutorials in in the high-level black belt and karate magazines back in the day are invaluable at creating the martial arts foundation that supports me today.
0: Another tall tale, at least it feels very tall tale-ish, was when he was 11, Bob got a job as a water boy for a construction crew, and... Near the site was a bridge over a river and the men would wrestle on the bridge to toss each other into the water and soon enough Bob was in on the contests and out wrestled full-grown men and this gained him quite the reputation in town. Though when not wrestling he was on the lookout to make sure the boss wasn't coming so the men could nap on the clock. Admirable, admirable work ethic right there. You know whether he was out wrestling grown men, and that was just a tall tale, or whatever. But I love the uh, the labor sentiment of, hey, let's let the kid be the lookout, and let's all take a nap for you know twenty an hour.
1: Yes, this is a, this is instilling the right, you know, the right belief structure in the youth, and he he grew up to be a, a fine, outstanding citizen of the people. But I I actually don't believe that that necessarily has to be a big uh, work, a big tall tale, because even if he didn't win they might be like this kid's got some scrap
0: to him oh yeah i'm sure they they brought him in and let him uh let him do part of the wrestling maybe they just kind of put him over to make him uh, feel tough you know let the kid feel strong and well that confidence definitely paid off
1: yeah take notes dad
0: (laughs) he also had a job at a grocery store where he would be lifting barrels and bushels trying to impress the counter girls i think that's another thing we can all identify with the old uh you know a ninth grade weightlifting class during PE and it's like oh there's pretty girls in this class well I better work out with better warm up with all the plates on this bar
1: yeah exactly and how many chairs can you carry back after practice so <laughs> I put it back in the closet I've got like four on each arm bro veins are just popping
0: and we've talked about this a lot you know wrestling is the sport and pastime for athletic farm kids small town kids it is just, you know, it was it was a way of life. It was just the folk pastime was wrestling with your friends, learning a fun hold from your uncle, learning another hold from your uh, from your dad. You know, it's picking up little things here and there because you know, before the internet, before video games, before you know, television and all these other things, there wasn't a lot to do when you're a kid other than get in trouble. And trouble was also was often in the form of wrestling with your friends until somebody had a broken leg.
1: Yeah, and it was, you know, that's the beginning of the end of the Oregon Trail for that one.
0: So, yeah, yeah so you see a lot of these these uh, these wrestlers, you know, if it wasn't like an outright farm life, it was things like this, like, oh, he's 11 years old, or, you know, whatever it is, working physical labor, picking up barrels, and doing grocery deliveries. A lot of these stories always have that, like, well, I had to grow up stronger than all the other kids in order to make my nickel a day, and that's just how it was, and... Carnival and picnic wrestling matches were also a way of life. He, uh, he would find himself wrestling older boys. Like, there was one uh, time where he was wrestling an older boy named Art Crowns, who was a friend, but definitely a friendly rival. And when they finally had a match, Bob threw Art so hard that he nearly bit off his tongue. Oof. Seeking family redemption, Art's older brother George challenged Bob and also lost. The Crown brothers grew up to be attorneys in the... Area and I almost can guarantee you that match was brutal as hell for one reason. There's nobody you're gonna whoop on harder than a front.
1: Oh yeah, and uh, just the the idea of biting through your tongue that is brutal.
0: But I I wonder
1: I wonder if the carnival shows look down on the picnic shows is like that's like the outlaw mud show like it's <laughs> oh, those carnies how oh dare they moving in on our territory?
0: Yeah, the uh, the picnic shows or the backyard shows yeah totally. day, just a bunch of untrained goofs. Yeah, I, I can see that. CM Picnic became
1: the number one. <laughs> Choco
0: And as he got older, you know, he had a few matches in local venues, including one against a wrestler named Lindsey, whom author Steve Yohei believed to be a pro working under an alias who roughed up the young up-and-comer throughout a two-hour draw. And if farm life is tough, we're now getting into the world of industrial labor as well. Bob got a job at the Rhinelander paper mill where he worked with a machine that spit out 100 pound paper bundles. He had to pick up one every 30 seconds and stack them 15 feet tall in columns for 12 hours a day. Wow. He claimed that this was the worst task of his life, and anytime he thought about quitting a match, he'd look back on those days for motivation. So imagine and this is like there's not probably a union for this so it's like for 12 hours every 30 seconds he has to pick up a 100 pound paper bundle and stack it potentially twice as high as he is standing all day every day like if if that doesn't turn you into a a a, an, an unstoppable killing machine i don't know what will
1: yeah, that's pretty remarkable, man. That's like having a keg in each hand. That's pretty heavy. I how much paper do you think it would take to weigh hundred pounds? Like how big does that palette have to be? I
0: mean it has to be pretty big or pretty dense. Either way, like I picture them almost like a cartoon where it's like dun 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 Just yeah, it's 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 backbreaking, horrible work. But that's just what being alive in those days was all about. But it wasn't all, you know, physical labor and hardship. He also liked to meet girls at the roller skating rink where he, of course, had a story about fighting a bully for an hour and a half, ending when he knocked the other boy down 25 times and had enough. So, you know, even, even like the uh, the going to pick up a, a girls at the roller rink, it's it's more about getting in a fight than it is about the girls he met. Again, I, you know, I I can honestly picture somebody like well, again. It's like everybody's doing incredible physical labor, so everybody has much better stamina. Boxing matches were still five hundred rounds, so I I do put more stock in a story of fighting a bully for an hour and a half behind a roller skating rink than you know if somebody was telling that story today.
1: Yeah, although I do have to say, if I do smell a little bit of a work there, it's that they negated the fact that they were still on roller skates because why would he get knocked down 25 times if he wasn't on roller skates? He would be, you know, probably knocked out from one of those knockdowns. Or it's just like they can't kick. oh, I almost got you that time. Hang on. I'm not really good on these things.
0: <laughs> or what if he was really good on those things? Oh, dude. Then it,
1: you'd think he would only have only had to knock him down once then.
0: You would think, but it's maybe I, I can't even look into the physics of this. All I know is that's a, that's a brutal way to spend an afternoon, but yeah. boys will be boys back then. And at this time, he got involved with a girl named Mabel, because I think all girls were named Mabel in those days. And they even wanted to get married, but were still in their teens. Uh, he did tell a story that 20 years later, while wrestling at Fort Worth, he found out that she had become a drug addict, was in a bad marriage, and both her and her husband were in jail. He bailed her out and told her to move back to their hometown. She didn't. Later on, she showed up at a wrestling match in St. Louis. He gave her some more money and never saw her again. Because, of course, every every young man needs a little bit of heartbreak that ends with uh, tragedy callbacks later on down the road.
1: Yeah, that had a bit of a little Forrest Gump Jenny flavor to it, didn't it? That was very, very proto-toxic.
0: Yeah, it's like, oh, hey, here's your uh, emotional, uh, your, your, your first love. Guess what? It all went terribly wrong for her, and you can't fix it, no matter how hard you try. Needing to expand his horizons, he moved to Minneapolis in either 1908 or 1909, just depending on the the source you're looking at. He got a job in a drugstore and found an apartment with a $5 monthly rent. He was training with Henry Ordman, who was one of the best wrestlers in the country at the time. A friend named Billy Potts helped him out as a de facto manager. He previously had been rumored to be training with Fred Bates, possibly with Fred Beal, and also using Martin Burns' correspondence course to learn the ins and outs of catch wrestling. Potts got him booked in a handicap match against Stanislaw Zabisco on February 10th, 1910. This is during Zabisco's tour leading up to his legendary single match against Frank Gotch. And good Lord, can you imagine being a young up and comer and your first real big match is against somebody of the caliber of Stanislaw Zabisco?
1: Yeah, especially he's, he's still named Bob at this point, right? Yeah, he
0: is still Bob Frederick. He's just
1: Bob Frederick from the farm, and he is about to understand what deep water sharks are, but he's also probably going to understand that he belongs on that level. So this is going to be a very, I would imagine, an invaluable moment in his progression.
0: Yeah, I've been watching a lot of uh, old Pride uh, MMA from uh, Japan, and this reminds me of like how Pride would book something. Like Here is the legend, the, the biggest challenger in the sport, and we're going to put him up against this idiot over here. Where it's like, hey, here is this guy who's, you know, 20 and 2, the number one contender in the world, up against somebody's ride along who is 0 and 0 and making his debut. It's that type of booking. It is pro wrestling booking in every possible way. And after the burlesque show that opened the night, because of course a burlesque show opened that night, Zabisco had to pin three men in half an hour. These men were Joe Carr. Carl Mattson and Robert Friedrich. Mattson was pinned in two and a half minutes. Carl lasted six minutes. Hey. And Bob was pinned in 12 and a half minutes.
1: Well, I mean, you know, no blame trying.
0: After the matches, Stanislaus was, you. Know, he went out and made a big speech about how tough Bob was, having no idea just how intertwined their fates would be in the future. And It is nice that he, you know, that was a very wrestling thing to do is once you steamrolled the locals or an up-and-comer, you definitely did make the speech to put him over, which isn't just sportsmanlike. it also sets up further business down the road.
1: Yeah, and I think maybe in certain situations, it is genuine. I mean, especially if he's like, damn, that kid had a little scrap to him. He's less experienced than those two other jokers and he lasted longer than both of them put together. That, you know, that would... On some level if you're used to just rolling through guys, this guy gave you more of a fight than most, that's gonna that's gonna stick with you.
0: Yeah, because a lot of people don't understand in grappling and boxing any any combat sport how much there is levels to this. So, you know, you can be the the toughest guy in the self-trained basement gym but then the first time you step up against an actual pro, and you last longer than around, congratulations, you did better than anybody would have expected you to. So this was a really good sign of the type of future that old Bob would have. And he was also having a little trouble just in life, because he was a bit of the starving wrestler, according to Steve Yohei, who would often get pity sandwiches from his roommate's work. Possibly this is why he had such an issue with food and weight later on. Something I can very much relate to because, you know, when you are an athlete and you have resources, yeah, you eat like six meals a day. And then if you don't have those resources, you starve like a motherfucker and will just binge eat whenever the food comes across. Uh, You know, I know when, you you know, when I was in my early 20s, I was poor as hell, still training. And then when I suddenly had resources, it was like, How did I gain 20 pounds? Oh, right. I'm still eating like I'm poor and uh, only had access to food every now and then.
1: Yeah. And also, like, you get used to eating like an athlete once you're at that level and you have that sort of infrastructure in place. But then you stop competing or your, your, your workload goes down, but you keep eating. You can have problems... With, with weight and food stuff later in life that way too. You see that with a lot of athletes who still eat like they're active pros. Oh yeah, and that's
0: why you see so many you know heavyweight boxers you know yeah, who will totally. be like walking around at 210 during their competitive years and then next thing you know, they're weighing 260 pounds totally. because they still have that mindset of bringing in the calories or else it's just the, oh, I don't have to cut weight. I'm eating chocolate cake. And next thing you know, you're eating chocolate cake every day. Yes. And next thing you know, you're having to your foot saw it off because you got type two diabetes. Oh man, you're gonna, that weight's gonna come off one
1: way or the other, old <laughs> chap. But yeah, we, but I do totally get that. But a last note on that is, I bet that probably helped him with his baby face elicitation of understanding and getting sympathy. If he was getting sympathy sandwiches, I've never even heard that term. That's like, <laughs> oh, can I, I'm having a rough day. Can I have a sympathy sandwich <laughs> <laughs> from the makers of five dollar foot long? <laughs>
0: And his life almost took a very different turn because soon after that, Bob was offered a spot on a pro minor league baseball team and relocated to Beach, North Dakota. He still wrestled and beat local heavyweight Jay Power. Power saw something in Bob and got him a match against a pro named Jack James. It was possibly a setup, hoping to get Bob's friend to bet on him, many of which were you know, there to do. Bob told everyone not to bet on him which was good advice seeing as he lost. so I feel like it was the locals trying to scam an, a, up and cover be like, oh I'm gonna wrestle with you oh this guy's really good he's so good. Hey you should yeah. wrestle this guy over here oh man I think you've got a real good chance against uh, the local pro over here and then you get the it's like a almost like an open mic you know if you're new to comedy or something you get all your friends to come to the open mic to support you even though you're no damn good at it. So I feel like that's what the, the scam was. And he just saw right through it and told people, don't bet on me because I'm probably not going to win.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a really good take on that because that's almost for sure what happened right there. But he ended up pulling out of it and not letting him have the okie doke, eh?
0: And his next big match, and he finally was starting to really step up and meet some names again, was against Fred Beal in Grand Rapids, Wisconsin on January 3rd, 1911. Um... Beal was a guy who uh, had a fun little little bit in the Gotch storyline. He was the guy you might remember who Gotch ran himself into the ring post, knocked himself silly. Beal rolled him up, setting up a proper match that drew big money. Clearly, a a bit of a bit of oh uh, yeah, no, actually, you're right. What would it be? A hippodrome! and this is a guy who still was a very very technically sound wrestler and Bob had nothing to offer in this match, and Beal toyed with him to pad the runtime, submitting Bob in seven and a half minutes. Beal then pinned him in 22 minutes, two straight falls, two straight losses, and Bob received $25 and a neck injury that lasted two weeks.
1: Oh, yeah, Well, I'll take the first, but the, at least the latter didn't last longer, especially back in those days. Oh, yeah.
0: It's not like there was like a, you know, like a... Or was there? Was there like some sort of like goofy medical contraption where you like stick your head in and like step on the pedal and then like extend your neck for a spinal decompression? I feel like there was enough quackery around that that might have been something you could order from a catalog. But once healed up, Bob barnstormed around the state, learning to work as well as shoot. He even made the journey on September 4th, 1911 to watch the Hackenschmidt versus Gosh rematch that... Killed wrestling in Chicago for years to come, and it makes one wonder what lessons Bob Friedrich learned from this. Totally. So yeah, he saw what a real match could do. He, he saw what there. a real match could, how it could blow uh-huh. up in your face. He probably in the back of his mind that was a lesson he carried with him throughout his uh, career. At least I assume it was.
1: Oh yeah, it have to. It have to.
0: And Bob had many jobs in many towns while wrestling on the side: baseball player, jewelry salesman, cowboy. Chicken cleaner. That was something list. Chicken cleaner. I don't know what the fuck that means, but he was a chicken cleaner. But a fun one was when he ran a movie theater. In 1912, the Titanic sank. You might have heard about this.
1: Oh yeah, I th- yeah. I think I think I read something about that on TMZ.
0: And a month after the tragedy, one of the survivors made a 10-minute film about it, and it was a smash hit in the tiny projector room he was showing it in. But across town, there was another more legitimate theater, and the owner was not having it. And he broke cinema kayfabe by announcing that the movie was a (gasps) reenactment, not the real sinking of the Titanic. And the rubes were blown away by this revelation. Like, it's just so insane to think about that there was a time where people were watching a short film about the Titanic, thinking it was real. And when somebody said, that's just a... uh, that's just them, that's just them putting on a little play. That's not the real thing. They're like, "What the fuck? Are you We've been lied to by movies." And yes, movies do lie to us. Yeah, John McClane in Die Hard, not a real guy. Whoa, 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 whoa.
1: take it easy there, buddy. There's certain lines we don't cross. But apparently, uh, there's no lines you don't cross in kayfabe when it comes to the theater wars of the 19-teens. Oh, apparently he, not. he broke kayfabe, he was just, he went full, he went full disclosure with it, huh? That is some, some shitty
0: booking. And old Bob Friedrich, he was not having it. He went to the newspaper office that was owned by the same person who owned the, uh, the, the, um, the, the theater, and trashed the place. He was arrested and fined $50, which was paid by supporters who didn't like the guy who broke K-fabe on the sinking of the Titanic.
1: I love that so much. That is just so... That's how you handle these things. Yes, he went right to the office, aggressive, aggressive, right in his face, and... Told him what he thought of
0: the place. Yeah, it's like, how do you do pro wrestling without pro wrestling? That's what that story is. It's like, we're going to show a movie. Well, this guy didn't have that movie, but he had a real theater. So he's going to expose the uh, the, the, the business. So Bob's going to come back and wreck the place and get arrested. But everybody hated the other guy, so they covered his fine. Well, That's wanna, wrestling, baby.
1: You want to turn a work into a shoot? This is what's going to happen, darling.
0: And things were looking up. In 1912, Bob was offered a run in Kentucky by promoter, Bill Dimitri, which Friedrich enthusiastically accepted. But when the time came, the promoter sent the letter with all the details to the wrong city. Whoopsie doodle, you know, it's not like you can send somebody a text message, an email, a DM, can't slide into those DMs, just sent a letter to the wrong place. And when the mistake was caught, it was too late to fix. So the promoter got veteran grappler Bob Mangoff to step in under the name Bob Friedrich, Mangoff never had a problem switching gimmicks for a payday. You might you might remember him as being the terrible Turk that John Pesek beat in a previous episode. So he'd been advertising Bob Friedrich, couldn't get Bob Friedrich, so he got somebody else to be Bob Friedrich.
1: Yes, a, that is a total promoter move, though. A- spending the money to advertise... For a particular talent, but not putting enough effort into getting the information to him so that you can actually get him there that day.
0: It was like the, uh, the equivalent of like, ah, shit. Um, okay, I guess you're a doink today.
1: <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> so they, they, <laughs> exactly. they
0: fake doinked Bob Friedrich. That's but amazing. Then what do you do when a week later, the real Bob Friedrich made it to town? But the audience already had a Bob Friedrich that they saw last week. So the promoter came up with a new name for Bob. Thus... Ed, Strangler Lewis was born.
1: You know, it's just maybe the most perfect microcosm example of how falling ass-backwards into the greatest ideas of all time is really how this business is done (laughs) (laughs) correctly.
0: Yeah, so Ed Lewis uh, made... (laughs) So Ed Lewis made his debut against Bob Frederick somehow in the weirdest of all possible bookings.
1: Wow. He doesn't fight himself to yeah, like he- kill his own name.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. So the other guy was wrestling under his name. He came in with a new name. He wrestled the guy wrestling under his name. So I guess in like you know Marvel universe uh, terms, it was like a variant from a from the multiverse that he had I- to defeat and make his new name yeah. as. Ed the Strangler Lewis. And in these days, Kentucky was a wrestling hotspot. And after so much of the business being shifted away from the Chicago area after Hackenschmidt versus Gotch, and it was close enough to get the top Chicago area talent because of the loss of local bookings. So places like Kentucky in 1913 became incredibly amazing places to be a wrestler or to be a wrestling fan because Chicago was dead so everybody in that area had you kind of branch out and start traveling more and Kentucky had a lot of money especially in the Lexington area it was a well-to-do city having escaped much of the damage that southern cities took during the Civil War it was the national center of the horse racing industry I guess those where the horse factories where they built the horses and had a large local audience for sports and sports betting that had decent money to spend both for tickets and side bets
1: yeah I mean you know place i've i've wrestled in louisville kentucky you know there's a big wrestling culture there that exists today that is a that is one of the places that has a completely self-sustaining local culture of professional wrestling that goes way back
0: and that's, obviously yeah and that's why bob now ed lewis settled down in the area for a few years and would be billed from lexington for much of his career And he had a series of programs with top guys like Dr. Benjamin Roller, who most likely taught Lewis a very important aspect of being a top guy, being willing to trade wins and losses so long as the loss wasn't 100% a loss, as Roller would lose due to injury forfeit for the third fall constantly. This program elevated Lewis to contender status. So Roller's a guy who was always in that conversation with Gotch with Hackenschmidt with Zabisco. And he just traveled around just because he was a wrestler and he was also a doctor and was more interested half the time in having conferences with other medical professionals to increase his base of knowledge there. And he had no problem, even though he was an amazingly skilled wrestler, doing worked programs where, yeah, where it'd be like, hey, you win one, I win one, and then one of us, you know, slips on a banana peel and hits our head and can't continue. So he introduced Lewis to the idea of you can lose without losing. You can lose and still look strong and then everybody wins for rematches down the road.
1: Yeah, and I'm sure that lesson was that much quicker to imprint based on the fact that he was there in the house the night wrestling died. He saw what the legitimate finish for Gotch and Smith 3 was and that ended up uh probably made him a lot more susceptible to the idea of working an angle like that.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, this is a guy who was very smart business-wise, never too proud to uh, do a work so long as it kept everybody strong. And you have to imagine the cultural trauma in the wrestling world, in the sporting world, that Hack versus Smith imprinted on everyone. Because, yes, that was a legitimate match, no matter what a lot of people tried to say. And because, like we always say... You could tell it was legitimate because it was terrible.
1: Yeah, totally, exactly. There was—if this was planned, this is not what they would have done. So that's how you know it was not a hippodrome. But that's exactly what people are going to think is uh, fake because it—it it, didn't—it didn't come off like a genuine competition because it was pretty much like a stall fest between two old broken guys that didn't want to give the other
0: guy a chance to beat him. And yeah, so we started seeing this generation of guys like Lewis who were legitimate, tough guys, legitimate, amazing grapplers, amazing wrestlers, but they understood that the only way to keep going throughout your career is selling tickets, getting press, being in that position, which is the lesson that had to be learned to keep wrestling alive at that point where, yeah, I can beat 99% of the people in a legitimate contest but will that sell tickets no matter what Added Infinim? No, you have to start sprinkling that carny bullshit on it to make a dance, and he learned to dance very well.
1: Yeah, they, they were really starting to create the mechanism where the thing that determined bookings was based on setting up potential draws and gates in the future, and this is when the formation of what we currently think of as like worked pro wrestling with storylines and angles and all that, this is where this comes from because it was about controlling outcomes to generate further revenue. That's the genesis of this whole thing and this is where it's starting to galvanize in the greater timeline.
0: And it kind of hit its zenith on September 18th, 1913 when Lewis beat Roller for a version of the U.S. championship via, of course... Roller injuring his ribs and being unable to continue the match in the third fall. And his first major defense was very dramatic. On September 29th, he wrestled another longtime foe, William Dimitri, that was so violent that the police stopped it and arrested both men for disorderly conduct. Mayor J.E. Cassidy was so outraged that he banned wrestling in Lexington, but was overruled by the local board of commissioners. So, again, we start seeing these matches that are getting so fucking wild, Still, in these days, that like the police storm the ring and arrest people, and the mayor is outraged and wants wrestling gone. But you know, the commission, of course, goes, This is probably bringing our city a lot of money, so shut up.
1: Yeah, talk about an angle, daddy. I've never even heard of that. They came in and arrested both guys because it was so violent. That's beautiful. Who booked this shit?
0: And in the rematch, it was Lewis's turn to lose the title due to injury, thanks to a fall into the orchestra pit during his rematch with Dimitrov. which what a hell what a hell of a tumble right there. Yeah. Hell of a bump. That's the hell, that's the hell in a cell uh, you yeah, know, Undertaker uh you know mankind bump for 1913.
1: I wonder if the like newspaper cartoon rendition went like quote unquote viral. <laughs> Everybody's like passing the around. <laughs> like, did you see he took the bump off the Off the stage into the orchestra pit. In fall of
0: 1913, Lewis was booked in Chicago with wrestling reinstated in that city at long last, which was his opportunity to show that he could be a star on the national stage. Post-Gotch, scramble for stars and matches with Gotch were just heating up because Gotch was retired, but not completely. You know, it was just, he was in a position where he was rich as fuck he was rocketing towards 40. He didn't really need money. He didn't care too much about competition. So something would have to be real special to draw him out of his retirement, bring him away from his farm. And everybody was trying to be that guy. Stecher was trying to be that guy. Pesic was trying to be that guy. Zabisco was trying to be that guy. And now Lewis was trying to be that guy because everybody knew that if you could bring him out of retirement, win, lose, draw, work, shoot it was gonna be so much goddamn money on the table that you would be set.
1: Yeah, and, he, and he's able to sit back and kind of let the scene play itself out to determine which one of the matchups is the best suited for him financially and box office wise. And it's very interesting how, how this, this, this four horse race played out.
0: And he made his Chicago debut at the Chicago Globe Theater on November 3rd, 1913. <laughs> He was in the main event against Paul Martinson. Lewis was billed as a college boy from Lexington and described as the new gotch, as so many were at the time. You would hear this about, again, you'd hear this about Cutler. You'd hear this about Stetcher. You'd hear this about so many guys, about how they're the next gotch, even though they're angling for a match with gotch.
1: Yeah, and even though his name is literally
0: the next Strangler Lewis, <laughs> It is revisionist history... And there's something I did uh, find when I was researching this is when an Ed Strangler Lewis arrived on the scene, there was a lot of retrospective articles from old timers going, oh, well, did you remember the original Strangler Lewis, Evan Lewis? And would do like big breakdowns of his career with illustrations and recapping his you know final big match against the terrible Turk, the one who sank into the sea. So there, there was a lot of fanfare, a lot of old-timers remembering the name, which draw, draws new attention to the younger picking up the title. And a lot of people would be like, oh, it was like paying homage because he was a big fan, when instead it was just whatever the hell they thought would look good on a poster at the time.
1: Yeah, you know there's one fan out there that was like totally putting the dots together. He's like, so listen, I know it sounds crazy the original Strangler Lewis. He drowned the terrible Turk but then the other terrible Turk became the new guy so that we could create the new Strangler Lewis. He had to kill himself so he could be the new Strangler Lewis but he really killed the Turk again.
0: And you can hear that conspiracy on the next episode of Coast to Coast AM. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, The Moline Evening Mail on October 27th hyped up the Chicago debut of Lewis in the opening show of the local wrestling season at the Globe Theater, giving nebulous descriptions of him beating all comers back in Lexington and, you know, defeating these people, being very vague but still hyping him up. And at first, Lewis leaned into his namesake's gimmick by using the stranglehold, but soon had to switch it up because that hold was now banned in many cities. And if a if a, if a uh, hold is banned in most competitions, you really need to start training away from it so yeah, you guess. don't accidentally latch it on and you start looking for your attacks in other, in other angles. It's kind of like if, you know, it's like, if, you know, like guys like us who are a little more just open submission style grapplers. But then if we go into a judo competition, well, we can't do leg locks. Well, we can't do air chokes. A guillotine is out of the out of the question. If you're pinned, it counts for points. You can't, you know, put your uh, forearm against across somebody's throat from side control to make them, uh, you know, you know, give you an arm. Once you take away those weapons and competition, training them is almost counterproductive.
1: Yeah, I completely agree on that. And it's just the only exception to that is if you're looking to create like a menacing persona where you're willing to do this illegal move. But that's not his angle. He's trying to beat these guys fair and square. So he's got to get out from under the rep of this band hold.
0: Yeah, because it's not like he's a, one of the terrible Turks who... Their whole gimmick tended to be like use something forbidden to be DQ'd and make the baby face yeah. look good. It was not something like that. So yeah, you kind of have to let that that one go. So he changed it up. So instead of that uh, that guillotine style choke... He figured out a way to cut kind it of from the same position make something magical happen, which he called a neck yoke. And it's almost a reverse guillotine. Using a half Nelson to position the opponent's head into his own chest, and he would use that arm as a lever to press the chin of the opponent into their own chest, cutting off the air via compression. And once he wore them down, he could easily roll them over for a pin.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. And, you know, the, that style of using... Arterial compression and neck cranks to create pending opportunities. That's something that is done very commonly these days.
0: Yeah, and like we we looked at some photos of this. It's pretty cool. It's yeah. It's like if you have somebody in a guillotine and you just kind of underhook uh, from one side, grab it almost like a kimura from uh, the guillotine position, and just pull inwards so that the head compresses into the chest. Your your uh, diaphragm is compressed as well. I mean, I could you could probably tap a white belt with it alone. But then, you know, you wear the person down yeah, enough... Yeah, then, then value you value in it. Yeah, you just use that Kimura to... Uh, or that double wrist lock to turn them over for the pin. You've already emptied their gas tank. They have nothing to defend it with.
1: Yeah, that's actually a really brilliant utilization of a submission technique not to get a finish per se, but to wear down the stamina in a quick way on their opponent to then go for... And then have that mechanism where, yeah, there's the way out and that... The way out is flipping you into getting pinned.
0: And if you were in the room with us, you could imagine how we're both, like, waving our arms you around, trying totally, to, like, demonstrate how we're doing You this. totally understand <laughs> it so good right now. you like, makes
1: so much sense. Thank you for that visual.
0: And Lewis was a little bit undersized as a heavyweight. He was 205 pounds and was well-known for his agility on the mat, and the world was still taking notice of him. The November 11th Chicago Examiner published a hype article entitled Lewis besieged by challengers. Every heavyweight wrestler in America wants to meet the Strangler, it seems. And a fun quote I found was from Lewis taking on multiple opponents from the November 15th Chicago Examiner with one opponent, quote, lasted for 10 minutes and 10 seconds and then begged to be excused from further wrestling.
1: (laughs) <laughs> I don't even know, does that count as a verbal tap? Did he say a safe word? Did yeah,
0: he... I, 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 clearly he was signaling to the referee that he was done, but I love the genteel media spin on that. Yeah. Where he he begged to be excused from further wrestling. Like, he was like, he like, took his monocle out and said, "'Pardon me, sir, but it appears that I'm overmatched in this grappling competition. Would you mind getting this ruffian off of me so that I may go about my day with a defeat in my heart?'
1: Dude, well, at least he knew how to lose with class.'"
0: Lewis was then matched up for a marquee face-off against Charles Cutler. In an attempt to build interest, the promoter had them stage a fight in a local restaurant which, of course, backfired when the press called it an obvious publicity stunt. So they were trying to get the pull apart. You know, they, they didn't have Twitter back in these days. They didn't have a, a pre-show video package. So they had to go have the two guys bump into each other at a bar or a restaurant or an orphanage or a zoo or whatever wherever people hung out in those days and have them get pulled apart and raising havoc to, you know, try to sell some tickets. And it, apparently it was so obvious that the media, the newspapers were like, Yeah, these this was obviously bullshit. These guys were being a a couple of silly, silly boys.
1: Yeah, how do we go from getting arrested in the ring to can't get arrested in this town? Come (laughs) on, fellas.
0: And according to the November twenty-fifth Chicago Examiner, the promoter wanted Lewis to forfeit two hundred and fifty dollars for, quote, running out on the match because he took a short notice match a couple days before in Kentucky, but returned in fine shape, and the bookies had the odds at 10 to 7 in cutler's favor <laughs> on november 26 1913 cutler and lewis went at it with cutler taking the first fall in one hour and one minute via crossbody lock lewis came back for the second with a neck yoke at just under 12 minutes and the final fall went to cutler via head scissor submission and cutler was reportedly so tired that he had to be damn near carried out of the ring Per the November 27th Chicago Examiner, the crowd was around 1,000 people as Chicago was still wary of watching wrestling at that point. And I really do wonder if this was a work or a shoot because there was so much showbiz drama, the, the pull apart at the restaurant, the demand of a forfeiture, the you know the 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 hero babyface being carried out after his heroic last minute, last bit of energy win. So I, I feel like it might be if I if I'm gonna
1: put on my my, my tinfoil booker hat, this is what I think. I think it might have been like a work shoot combo where it's like, okay, because on the one hand, the first fall taking an hour. Tells me that that is a shoot. They wanted to see what each other got. And they went hard for that first fall. But then it sounded like they kind of had a planned second or third fall sort of layout. depending. Like that first fall sounds legit. If you're going for an hour, you're not doing that on purpose. You know, you're not doing that because you chose to as the hippodrome. That wouldn't be the way you set it up. The second fall being in 12 minutes, that's almost 10 to 12 minutes. Every time we have a multiple fall, it's always a second fall 10 to 12 minutes so that smells totally like a work and the finish for the third fall smells like work but my guess, this is their big first match, they wanted to see what they had so that first fall was a shoot and fall two and three was a work off of that shoot finish.
0: That makes a lot of sense and I do agree because yeah, anytime anything's an hour long from an event, that doesn't smell like a hippodrome because if I was doing a worked match even in these days. An hour for all three falls is perfect. And otherwise, you're kind of getting into that, you know, WrestleMania exhaustion, you know, making working people stay up till three in the morning and watch this goddamn thing, you know, risking the, the pay per view, which wouldn't exist for decades to come, to cut out at the, uh, the last minute. Just, An hour-long thing always feels legit because then it's going to be defensive. Then it's going to be them not wanting to lose, even though it might be, cool, well, whoever wins the first one, fine. And then, you know, it can either be two falls or three based on what the predetermined plan was. And, you know, even though he lost, Ed got a nice write-up in the Chicago Tribune with a photo of him putting future collaborator Billy Sando in the neck yoke. And much of the interview centered on his education, since the college education was part of his initial big city gimmick, which of course was total bullshit. He was, you know, probably barely had a uh, you know tenth grade education because he had to go to work because he lived in Wisconsin in these days. Yeah, he went
1: to the school of Doctor Rollers Hippodrome Academy of learning how to uh, steal a
0: house. <laughs> And up next was a big match against Gus Americus Schonlein. Americus was a big star out of Baltimore and defeated the young Strangler with two straight falls in a combined 55 minutes. According to the December 30th Fort Wayne Daily News, Americus secured a crotch hold to a body lock to a uh, slam him on his head, which left him s- stunned for three minutes. So it sounds kind of like a like a scoop slam, just kind of in different yeah, terms. Yeah, high crotch. Yeah, got him with a high crotch, picked him up, turned him sideways, boom, landed on his head, knocked him uh, goofy for about three minutes, and he just had nothing to offer afterwards. And even in defeat, according to the Moline Evening Mail, the crowd was supporting Lewis. And this is another one of those moments where I do have that, oh, was that like a legit situation where he got knocked stupid and couldn't really compete very well? The old... Uh, you know Pedro Hizzo getting knocked out, but he was still uh, fighting for four more rounds. Or was it going back to the uh, Doctor Roller lesson of get injured so you look strong even in a loss?
1: Yeah, it might have been a bit of both. It's hard to tell, but I, you know, America's fuck yeah. Especially <laughs> <laughs> that's not your, like I love how it's like not his nickname; it's just like actually his name, middle name.
0: And the crowds, you know, they were loving this man. You know, Ed Lewis was seen as a young, talented, but still undersized wrestler at 205 pounds. With two main event losses under his belt, be they works or shoots, he headed back to Lexington. Uh, Though he did return to Chicago in early February for a match against Fred Beal on February 2nd, 1914. Lewis took the first fall via side roll pin in 9 minutes, 37 seconds. Beal took the second with a headlock submission. Then Beal won the third with a pin via toe hold turn. So kind of like what Gotch did to Hackenschmidt, you know, you get the submission, but instead of cranking it to get a submission, you're using it to turn them over to get the pin. As we discussed before in matches like this, that almost makes more sense because you threaten the injury to get a pin rather than blow all your energy on a submission, which could possibly blow you out, and then you got nothing So, it's like you just use the threat of the submission, get them on their back, take it easier rather than fighting, blowing all your energy, trying to get the tap out.
1: And you got a rematch to draw a house for another day if you don't blow the guy's leg out, right? If you submit him, you you risk him being stubborn and having to really crank it and hurt him and then potentially be a detriment to your ability to draw down the road. So, on every level, it makes sense to roll him over and get the pin with it.
0: And with that loss, Lewis wouldn't return to Chicago for the rest of the year. He was still very active. On January 28, 1914, there was another match against Roller. The match went with them trading falls, and the third featuring fighting out of the ring and a questionable finish that pissed off the crowd, which was a fall from the outside that tangled them into the ropes with Lewis's shoulders off the canvas. Another inconclusive finish to keep both strong and lead to a proper finish in a match later on. Again, pro wrestling 101.
1: Classic Dr. Roller. (laughs) The proto-Guerrero dirty finish man. This guy is good, bro. Dr. Roller is really one of these unsung, you know, original bookers that he's got so many good little angles that he's come up with.
0: And while in the South, Roller was managed by Billy Sandow. And Lewis at the time was managed by Jerry Walls managers were more important in this era than they were later on because we now think of things in terms of territories or promotions or you know things like that from the NWA on afterwards but up until this point the manager was the person who made the matches the manager is the one who put it all together the manager handled the business because there weren't any you know big promoters there weren't big promotions I mean, there were people like Curly and, and people like that, but for the most part, the manager protected their fighter, put the big money matches together, that was where everything kind of came together. He was the nexus of the business, not the promoter.
1: Yeah, there weren't the established promotion brands, as it were. The draw was based on the name of the wrestlers, and so the, the agents would be in control of the individual booking of that individual wrestler. so that would dictate that the house and the town. So if you you know every every primary top draw has a potentially a different booker, that's the reason that nobody was able to draw. And I like, control the top talent in that way. At that time, it was actually much better for the talent, probably financially.
0: Oh, absolutely. It's kind of like, uh, in, in current terms, boxing versus MMA. Yeah. Because MMA is all promoter-based. It's the UFC. It's exactly. Bellator. The promoter holds the contracts. So the the fighters can't be outside of that. So the everything is controlled by the promoter. Meanwhile, boxing now, thanks to the Ali Act, is... The, the fighter can go anywhere he wants, do whatever he wants, and it's the manager who does the heavy lifting to make sure that everybody gets paid the most possible, no matter what tent the fight falls under.
1: Yeah, when a UFC pay-per-view goes out, it's the UFC, and there's a, a headline fighter or a few of them on the card, but the cell is the UFC itself. Whereas in boxing, the cell is 100% predicated on the individual fighters in the, in the main event and on the card. That's the way the current structure is that we see it now. And that makes sense that it would be structured that way when there were so few people holding the keys at the time.
0: And Wally made a good connection with Billy Sandow. Their business relationship really wouldn't happen until a little bit later. But in the meantime, his manager was still getting him good matches. On February 10th, 1914, he had a big match versus Marin Plastina, who was the final Martin Burns student to make it big in wrestling. The match took place at the Lexington Opera House, which was a two-hour draw. Yawn, almost certainly a shoot. I can't, I can't imagine a two-hour draw in order to sell tickets for more action, because who would want to see that? But regardless, the rematch was set for the 18th, with the dreaded stranglehold being legal. Wow. Lewis was DQ'd after 43 minutes for rough work and refusing to break when they got off the mat. Placina pinned Lewis in the second inside five minutes after a big slam, and once again Lewis shows how to stay looking strong despite the two straight fall loss. Because the first one was a DQ, the second one was after uh, you know like a a big fall that looked like it injured him. Might have been a little bit of suspicious circumstances for his for his health, but either way, he did leave with two straight losses. Work or shoot, it does kind of ding you in your reputation. But you would think that might lead to a step back career-wise. Instead, he got a big one. He got a match against Stanislaw Zabisko on March 23, 1914 in a handicap match where the Polish grappler had to throw Lewis twice in an hour. We keep seeing these type of matches because these were great setups to keep a big name champ or a big name draw strong and maybe build up a smaller person to be worthy of a more expensive ticket in a bigger venue later on down the road. It was, again, Pro Wrestling 101 from the Carnival Times. But Zabisco, definitely not a man who liked to work, and this certainly was not one. The local crowd cheered on Lewis as he aggressively went after Zabisco, who seemed to rely on his size and strength to defend against the smaller Lewis. But either way, Zabisco caught Lewis in a toehold that he couldn't escape from and gave up. So for the rest of the hour, Lewis played defense, including stepping off the mat and refusing to engage with Zabisco until the time ran out. He just ran out the clock. Because, you know, it's, we've talked about this all the way back to Muldoon versus Matsuda, where if you have a challenge match like this, it's harder to beat a guy who just has to wait out the clock.
1: Oh yeah, it's no different than like current point systems that you see a lot of that with like a gi jiu-jitsu tournament where someone can have a point advantage and be in a, you know, someone can have a dominant position on top of them but they have the point advantage and they can just stall out to achieve victory because the point system is structured as such that if the other person doesn't gain those additional points they're going to win by default and Bravo to him for being savvy enough to recognize that in this situation.
0: Yeah, same thing with how they changed the rules in hockey. Because hockey, at the trap defense, became an almost unbeatable system thanks to the Dallas Stars in the late 90s. Same thing with the Devils. But it became so boring and so hard to score points that they finally took away the two-line pass just to make the sport watchable and entertaining again. Because again, you play defense to win, but it doesn't necessarily make for entertaining matches. And one person who definitely wasn't entertained was Stanislaw Zabisco, who was pissed. <laughs> he was enraged that Lewis would run and avoid him to run out the clock and complain to the referee, and the ref had to tell him that Lewis always came back in when ordered, so he couldn't DQ him, and told him that it's his own damn fault for not getting a roped offering instead. So it took place on a on a canvas without ropes. So anytime that he was in danger, he would just step out of bounds. The ref would tell him to get back in. He would get back in, but that would be a restart. So he just played the psychology of a defensive game to the point where Zabisco had a post-match meltdown.
1: That was an awesome burn by the ref, too. Like, well, if somebody wasn't a cheap bitch and it actually paid for ropes, we wouldn't be in this situation.
0: And Zabisco Stanislaw Zabisco was the biggest and best wrestler after Gotch had retired, but his younger brother, Vladek, was the hottest up-and-coming star. He was big, strong, had the family gentlemanly manner, and he was also much more versed in catch-style wrestling than his older brother. Ed Lewis saw the push that Vladek received as something that he deserved instead, and he wasn't happy about it. He publicly challenged Vladek, going so far as to hand out public petitions for the match. In return, Vladek tried to attack him before Lewis' match with Fred Beale. So again, whether this is showbiz fire or legit, it got everybody's attention. And the match was made for April 4th, 1914, at the Armory in Detroit. According to Steve Yohei, the match was set to be a work, but when the bell rang, Lewis changed his mind and refused to cooperate with the younger Zabisco. Whether that's true or not, shit got wild. Because frustrated, Zabisco started fouling Lewis with elbows and eye pokes. Lewis complained to the ref who did nothing, which makes sense if it was supposed to be a work, and Lewis lost his temper and socked Zabisco in the jaw with three punches. A riot nearly broke out, and the match was ruled a no contest as the police pacified both the wrestlers and the audience. According to the April 8th New Britain Herald, quote, A ringside speech by Zabisco in Polish denying he tried to gouge Lewis. An outpouring, angry, excited people that kept the police busy for more than an hour. The wrestling match attracted a fairly large crowd. When Lewis struck Zabisco, the latter's friends leapt from their seats and started towards the ring. Police immediately interfered, and someone awarded the match to Zabisco on a foul. Someone else declared, all bets are off, as a mob surged about the ring. Police broke it up, and after hard work, a number of troublemakers were ejected. ECW, ECW. That is such good shit, man. Yeah. Whether that is a work, whether it was a shoot, whether Woo! it was a work that turned into a shoot. Oh yeah. This was big news. Like when I was researching, I, I like to go month by month and every year through newspaper archives. And when I was going through April of this year, I would typed in you know uh, Strangler Lewis and. From coast to coast, border to border, this was in every sports page. This was a big match. It was a big deal, and the fact that it melted down into fists flying, a big promo in Polish to the Polish uh, audience. There was rushing the crowd, trying to get at Lewis. People trying to fight them off. The police coming in and having to, you know, stop the fights and throw people out. Shit got wild as it did up until this era. So it was a big goddamn deal, which makes a lot of sense financially that they put a rematch together as soon as humanly possible on April twenty third. So just a couple yeah, weeks, later, like weeks later. Yeah,
1: Two weeks later? Yeah, two
0: weeks later. These oh these are this is the day when everybody was wrestling work or shoot oh, yeah. you know four times a week all over the place. So it wasn't like there was a big layoff with a training oh, yeah. camp like a yeah, like,
1: that's the hottest angle in wrestling. They gotta get, they're got they getting coverage. That is good shit, man.
0: Yeah, because whoever put that together was a genius because they were like, okay, go to the building. What, what building can we get to do this again? Because we got to strike while the iron is hot. And as you can imagine, it was a little rough in the ring. After an hour, Zabisco landed two big slams. The second with Lewis landing on his head and getting pinned. He claimed he was too hurt for another fall, so the match went to Zabisco. And what does this feel like to you? It feels like a, a hippodrome! So I do feel like business won out over uh, over any actual personal heat or personal problems. The younger Zabisco had no problem working uh, for a living. So the fact that it was really, once again, just a page out of the Roller Handbook, land on your head, get pinned, take the loss, that probably was the conversation where it's like, you were the asshole, so you're the one taking the loss. Cool, just make me look good and pay me well. We can all go about our business after that.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you left the door open for a potential rematch. It wasn't a decisive multi-fall finish with a clear outcome. He couldn't continue, so there's always that, yes, classic roller.
0: And clearly the injury, whether it was real or not, wasn't too serious because he had another match with charlie cutler the following weekend which he lost and lewis took a few months away from wrestling maybe he needed to refocus after the losses maybe to rehab injuries maybe it was just to kind of get any losses off of his uh off of his reputation so people would be excited to see him again but when he reappeared he was working in virginia where he defeated haldemar Ludnin, yusuf hussein and john Perilli in richmond one thing I noticed a lot from this time was the occasional allowance for the stranglehold, clearly to pop sales the way that a hardcore blow-off would be used these days. Because we mentioned already a match where it's like, oh, well, they're having a rematch and things are personal, so we're going to allow the stranglehold. We're going to have it in a steel cage. We're going to allow whatever weird stipulation to make it seem a little more dangerous, make it a little more of a blood sport feel, hopefully sell some more tickets than we would have originally.
1: Yep, and that's just classic good booking and it totally makes sense that he's doing this Now that the name from that last angle that they did went coast to coast That was the biggest hottest angle in the world. It's getting you know nationwide coverage now He's going outside of that territory. So now they're wanting to see the spectacle. They want to see the stranglehold They want to see the band maneuver and the man bad enough to to pull it off you know
0: yeah because at this point you you know a, a move had been so dangerous we talked about this a lot with evan lewis and with uh you know farmer burns where referees weren't always well versed in the submission holds so if you get a guy in a choke hold whether it's a you know a, a hang hold a guillotine or a rear naked choke a lancashire hug if you will and the referee doesn't know what they're looking at or how the react the body reacts to that Next thing you know, somebody's unconscious on the floor having to be revived and still expected to come out for the third fall.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and not just that, probably getting dropped while they're completely unconscious and having their head or or a joint or something wrap on the ground. We've seen that many times where a guy gets unconscious and the damage is done from the way the body unfolds from the grip or whatever
0: yep because yeah it's like if you go completely out unconscious and it's like a standing hold or like just from a weird angle yeah. and then you get let go well you don't react like you're a, you're a, you're a rag doll you're yeah, like, exactly you know, you're gonna
1: whip into the ground with yeah your head and it's really some real bad damage happens because nothing hits harder than the ground
0: man. yeah so it's something that you know it's something where i feel like it became more dangerous in legend after it was banned yeah so when you advertise the stranglehold is is you know is allowed no holds barred as they say then you know that's gonna maybe sell a few more tickets because now it's got a little sexy danger on it
1: yeah especially since he's never actually won many matches with the strangle <laughs> he had his custom you know what do you call it the neck yoke
0: yeah yeah the neck yoke which he did later on abandon for more of a scarf hold uh, <clears> you know which is what he became famous for later on where it would be like a headlock but he made sure the shoulders were planted so it's a compression choke while hanging onto the arm. But that was kind of in a transitional period in his career. This is still, you know, young baby strangler figuring things out in the business and uh, finding his way. But yeah, these were still his bread and butter holds. And another man we keep talking about, Benjamin Roller, he was back to the South being very active in the area and claiming to be the U.S. champ like so many people before at the same time and since. Nothing like making up a title, putting it on your waist and using that to sell tickets. So Lewis and his manager, they got along very well with the Benjamin Roller, Billy Sandow team, so they did a title switch on September 3rd, 1914, then Lewis dropped it back to Roller on September 29th. Lewis won clean, but lost vs. DQ. Roller was pretty much tapped out in the area and moved on, happy to put Lewis over in a clean fashion. Sandow, who had been on good terms both personally and business-wise with Lewis, took the role as his manager and this was a history is made moment billy sandow born wilhelm bauman on september 4th 1884 in rochester new york his brothers were also closely tied to the wrestling world with his brother jules promoting in upstate new york their other brother max ran out of savannah but was also john pesick's manager for a short period he might have taken the name from a Prussian strongman and wrestler Eugene Sandow, who was active in the late 1800s, mostly in Europe. So, you know, the good thing that nobody's ever taken the name Sandow again in wrestling to keep that uh, that gimmick alive. Oh, yes,
1: especially no no weirdos, you know.
0: (laughs) So, yeah, so he took the name from a a Prussian strongman, called himself Billy Sandow because he was a wrestler himself. He was more suited to backstage dealings, though, than in-ring glory, and his views were heavily influenced by promoter William Brady. Brady was a wrestling and boxing promoter with a flair for the dramatic. He was the manager for boxer Bill Corbett when he was prepping for his victory over John Sullivan in 1892. He saw wrestling as theater, drama, and action, which set the stage for what wrestling was to become, mostly through Sandow's efforts. Brady was also the manager for the original Terrible Turk, Yusuf Ismail, and paraded him around the states in a fashion that would make P.T. Barnum envious. There were even rumors that he planted the story of Ismail being sucked underwater by the weight of his money belt when the boat he was on sank into the ocean with all aboard. Not very tasteful, but goddammit, it'll get you headlines.
1: Yeah, that's some heat right there. This is a very villainous backstory.
0: And according to Fall Guys, The Barnums of Bounce by Marcus Griffin, Sandow first came across Lewis when he was still known as Bob Frederick when they booked him to lose a worked match against Yusuf Hussein, yet another terrible Turk. Sandow allegedly told Bob that Yusuf had to catch a train out of town to the next spot that night, so he needed to make it two straight falls in 20 minutes. Bob told them to stuff it. He was a working wrestler and coach in the area and would look like an asshole if that happened. He was willing to job, but not get squashed like that. So, smart, protecting his image, protecting who he was as a shooter and a worker. And Sandow got angry and threatened to have Yusuf shoot on him and badly hurt him if needed. Bob reportedly replied, Okay, that's the way you three feel. Then you tell Yusuf or me we'll level and tell him to try and get two falls in 20 minutes.
1: (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Yusuf,
0: <laughs> I just love that it's like all right well if you don't go along with things you just tell your guy you know, we'll just have our guy come out and really hurt you and, and he was just cool well you tell him to do his best I'll do my best we'll see what happens
1: yeah he's like he's got 19 minutes
0: yep so that was the night that Strangler Lewis then Bob Frederick he went out and beat Yusuf in two straight falls Sandow wasn't happy but saw a new star in the making and whether that specific story is true or not is up for debate What is not up for debate is the importance that Lewis and Sandow's friendship and business arrangement would have in the future of professional wrestling. And that's where we're going to kind of put a pin in things. We now have hit that point where two-thirds of the Goldust Trio have now come together, where Sandow was the brilliant mind who saw wrestling as as drama, as theater with action involved and the perfect poster child for this new generation, a, a man who was a dangerous shooter who would happily do business in order to keep the business going. And this would impact wrestling like nothing before. So this was probably the biggest meeting of people in the wrestling world since Hackenschmidt and Gotch stepped in for their photo opportunity before their first match. The repercussions of this relationship would lead to wrestling as we know it today, but we're done for today. That's going to be a story for next time because this story is going to continue. We're going to talk about how they came together, what they built, what they made the wrestling world through their just their brilliance, their hard work, and their complete lack of morals and a sense of right and wrong. <laughs>
1: yes, and, and just a brilliant understanding of they had stumbled on a greater and potentially more financially profitable formula for booking professional wrestling than it ever existed before through when it was primarily legit with some exceptions. They had come up with the emotional. They found the right frequency to really draw the people in, and they were just galvanizing. And it's so cool to be at this point in this, seeing how it all takes shape with each major player in this in the Gold Dust Trio.
0: And that's why we're going to leave things for now. So make sure you like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We'll be posting some articles and uh, some some fun uh, photos that we find from these days, and more importantly. Get excited for the next one, because this story just gets wilder, it gets crazier. We're gonna start seeing a lot of people who we've learned about over the last few months coming together and telling a pretty much a mob story, but with wrestling instead of instead of shootings. That's really the only way to, to put this story together. And I'm glad you're along for this journey with us. I'm glad you're listening, I'm glad you're liking it, I'm glad we're we're doing this. So we'll talk to you next time for Choco Bronson. I'm Nick Gossert. We'll talk to you later.
1: Yes, talk about a cliffhanger. Cut Prince Martini.